Hey everyone, I'm Jerome Goodrich, and you're listening to Collaborative Craft, a podcast brought to you by A-Flight. These days, it seems like everyone's walking around with their head in a cloud. On-prem hardware has an almost antiquated feel. Cloud migrations can remove a lot of the headaches we typically associate with old legacy systems. On-premise servers can be finicky, costly, and straight-up clunky, while serverless options promise reduced cost, greater scalability, and increased team productivity. But is that really the case? To find out, I talked with Bill Wenjoey, a principal crafter at Athlight who brings deep experience in web services, relational databases, batch data processing pipelines, and the support systems needed to deploy, maintain, and secure them. In other words, he has a ton of experience helping organizations manage the trade-offs of different approaches to server management. In this conversation, we dive into the world of serverless architectures by first taking a look back at how we got here. What were the first steps into the cloud? What unintended consequences did we create and should we have stopped with Docker containers? Without further ado, let's go talk to Bill. Bill, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. Really excited to have this conversation and catch up. It's been a while. Yeah, likewise. So we're we're going to talk a little bit about serverless, but before that, I was hoping that uh, you could provide the listeners with your bona fides. Why are we talking to you about this topic? I've been working in this industry, depending on how you define the borders of the industry, for 10 to 18 years. My professional experience out of college began in actually the legal industry mm -hmm. where I very quickly started working with data, but the data that I was working with was incredibly anachronistic. We we're talking about reams of paper that I was photocopying, that I was uh, taping over highlights that attorneys had made, lugging boxes up and down stairs. And eventually I got into doing data processing with mm -hmm the SQL language, which actually I somehow got through an engineering degree without, without knowing existed and, <laughs> uh, and, and built up from there to become a database administrator, eventually kind of made lateral shifts in my career, mm -hmm. such that I was working in new contexts, first in politics, progressive politics, and then in the web application development sphere. And, uh, wasn't just doing data work, but also system administration, and then got really into this cloud architecture thing. And uh, because I have been working with major clouds like AWS for so long, I'm able to see how things rhyme and have like a skepticism about what's actually new about this thing. Hmm. In my current application development, I want to hear a pitch for how serverless makes my job easier, because I think as software professionals, we have very complex, very difficult jobs, and I want tools that help us with those challenges rather than add additional ones. I think one of the curses of having a software engineering podcast is that pretty much every episode has to start with some sort of definition <laughs> just mm -hmm. because a lot of the terms we use 
are very much overloaded or mean things to different people. So let's start off with what do you mean by serverless? You know, these days, serverless is kind of synonymous with AWS Lambda or even the serverless framework that's used to deploy those Lambdas. Yeah, absolutely. And that's my experience as well. It's very anchored in the AWS suite. Mm -hmm. And I, I think I could come at it in a couple of different directions. I think of serverless as building on a large foundation of other technologies and techniques. So when you talked about the distinction between AWS Lambda, which is a infrastructure as a service offering from AWS, distinct from the serverless framework, which is, mm -hmm. to my knowledge, is mostly just open source software that helps us manage that infrastructure you know, commercial offering. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of a, a higher level. The serverless is higher than AWS Lambda, but I see AWS Lambda is higher than a bunch of other precursors. Okay. So yeah, basically down at the bottom, something like the concepts of hardware virtualization. And when you say hardware virtualization, you're talking about the good old days when you had servers on racks and things like that, and now those exist as virtual machines on a server on a rack. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, maybe there's even steps before, like we're talking about racking servers as opposed to, you know, just having towers dedicated. Sure. That arguably is a step. Yes. But we're talking mostly about virtual systems. And so the first step is just the insight that we have bought a lot of compute and we have it in a server room or a data center and we're realizing that it's actually kind of hard to do capacity planning so that we make the right decisions when it's time to make these purchases that are going to fit our needs for the coming year or the coming five years depending on on our contracts and so there are these solutions out there software solutions that allow us to treat this one machine as five machines or 10 machines or whatever, whatever the case may be. Mm -hmm. And so slicing that hardware up, maybe it gives us some performance benefits in certain circumstances, but usually it's actually kind of the opposite. We're sacrificing performance because there's overhead in all abstraction and virtualization. And what we get in exchange is just a ton more flexibility. When new needs arise, we don't have to go through the process of physically procuring, like actually installing hard things. And so that, that was a really huge sea change, the broad adoption of hardware virtualization on site, in the data center, and then eventually also in the services that we're buying from third parties. Basically, in the early 2000s, just everybody just kind of moved over there and started to benefit immensely from that. Mm -hmm. But it's just like, that's not enough. We get a little taste and we want more. We want more. And so we just build up and up from there. This first C change is basically, we're going to sacrifice this performance hit for a promise of a more bespoke experience as a company. We're going to only get the resources that we require. And we have the flexibility of spinning up new ones or tearing down old ones on an as-needed basis. Yeah, I think that's right. I'd probably use a different word because bespoke is kind of a, about being very particular upfront and mm -hmm. making an investment 
in like a specific vision. Okay. Hardware virtualization is like, you don't have to have a vision. (laughs) (laughs) Right. We we can just decide day to day what we're Mm going to do. And the cost isn't just the overhead. It's also more things to manage, more things to understand, because now you need to understand your physical hardware and you need to understand this uh, virtualization software that sits above it. But yeah, the combination of those costs are outweighed for most organizations with just that agility. And so agility is a huge driver of infra innovation, I think, in our industry, and it continues to be. And so we get a little taste of that agility, something that we didn't necessarily have before. Mm -hmm. And the instinct is we kind of try and take that to its logical conclusion. So what's kind of the next step after this hardware virtualization? So in my mind, I think this tower is probably more honestly a graph where there's arrows that point in multiple directions and maybe even zigzag. But just to keep things simple, I think maybe the next layer on my tower is the proliferation of the virtual private server and offering like EC2 or um, DigitalOcean, Linode. You had older versions of this that were very tailored to the dominant web stacks in the early 2000s, where you would just have a PHP stack that people could buy at a low, low price. And they'd just be in their own little jail where they could perform certain compute operations. And taking advantage of Sometimes not necessarily hard, hardware virtualization, like like the example that I gave with these PHP jails. It may have been something that's a little bit more synonymous to uh, Docker containers, which we'll talk about later. Mm-hmm. But basically, it's the software as a service sweetener on top of what we get with these virtualization technologies. And so what it means is that we can buy fractional machines now. So it, mm-hmm. it's not just about flexibly using something that we've already purchased, but it's also saying like, you know what, today I want a little bit more. And so having that service allows me to scale my purchase based on my current workload, as opposed to um, having to make some kind of blunt overall judgment about how many uh, calculations you want to make, how much data you want to store for the coming year. And of course, the other aspect is that now you can outsource whole categories of work, you know, real estate management, you know, physical hardware manipulation. A lot of compliance work is now something that you just have a contract with somebody else to ensure. Other ones, especially with the advent of EC2, huge step forward in having a programmable interface for all decisions Mm -hmm. around hardware. Now, everything that I decide about my infrastructure can be repeatable and loggable because if I decide in my organization to do this through the APIs, which cover every aspect of that service, I can do that and have been able to do that for more than 10 years now. These services, as they mature, they give us things like networking and storage and monitoring in arguably easier ways than we could do them before. So it's just a ton of different benefits. I really think the virtual private server is is just a marvel, (laughs) a technology marvel. And if I'm reading you right, the vibe that I'm getting is like, maybe we should have stopped there. (laughs) (laughs) In my heart of hearts, that is a subtext, yes. (laughs) So keeping that in mind, there were kind of like these large inflection points that you very eloquently elaborated on 
after the advent of the virtual private server, if we imagine this progress or utility is a graph, mm -hmm. is there sort of a flattening of the curve? Do things start to peter out in terms of usefulness after that? And why, why do you think that if that's actually the case? Yeah, I guess I was talking about zigzagging arrows. And I think one of the things that makes the layers above this tricky is that some things that were abstracted away leak their way back into our domain. We, we end up having to be concerned with things at multiple layers of the stack, I think. So one of the things that really allowed for this next layer to happen, which has tremendous value, was a problem with the virtual private server stage of things, which was that we didn't really have great portability at that state. Mm -hmm. It was possible to take machine images that would give you some portability between you and your colleagues in a dev team. And it was possible to take machine images on the Amazon cloud or related competitors. But portability between those environments was pretty poor. The industry never really coalesced on like one thing. And so I really do feel that Docker containers, which are a lot of different things, but I think that they were as big of a hit as they were primarily because they solved the problem of portability, of environment portability. Mm -hmm. uh, the ability for anybody who's ever written a Bash script to create a definition for a Linux environment and then to run that anywhere was just a great leap forward. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, that's two things. It's the image format and it's that build specification and build system. Mm -hmm. And so I, I love Docker containers, actually. I think they're great. Um, <laughs> so I, I guess if I had to stop somewhere, I would stop there. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, give me my Docker containers on my virtual private server and then I'm happy. <laughs> but yeah, I would say that's huge. But so what's the catch? Why am I grumpy? What do I not like? Well, what I don't like is that you can get a ton of leverage from running those single containers on a single VM, and you can scale that VM to the precise size and you know parameters that you want. And you can create lots of versions of that VM, and you can assemble them in a network quite dynamically. Or you can say, I don't like VMs. I just want containers. I want to be able to bin pack them on shared virtual machines that I treat as raw compute. I want to create a new network layer. I want to create new facilities for storage that don't take advantage of these paid services that we've already mastered. I want to have uh, service discovery. So I don't want to deal with like the old way with domain names, service. I don't want to push my services through those things. I just want to solve all these problems from scratch and so here we are with things like bespoke container orchestration with services like Kubernetes. It's, there's not really a like Kubernetes. Kubernetes is just one. They are, <laughs> they are the container orchestration solution. And I just feel that DevOps for about five years has been consumed with figuring out how to do as well on the container layer what we had already solved at the virtual machine layer. And so, yeah, that's one of the things I'm going to be about. Yeah, basically. <laughs> this is already a solved problem. 
and we have this new technology and it's not solved for that, even though it kind of solves the portability issue, it's introducing this new problem that we had already figured out. Yeah. I think really the issue is that if you don't realize what made Docker amazing, you may not actually realize what problem it was solving. And so then you're saying, okay, and now we need to solve the rest of it, which is the existence of this virtual machine, right? Mm. And so similarly, I do think that there are places where a function as a service could be very useful, but well, the cliche way of putting it is when you have a hammer, everything's a nail. It's mm -hmm. just the hype machine is based around a particular solution being a hot thing. It's a good thing. But if you don't know what that thing is for, it's possible you're going to go on a very long side quest <laughs> to get some value out of it. Another aspect of it is that most of us are not Google. And I think that a lot of trends, particularly in infrastructure, tend to be dominated by solutions that are well tailored to very, very large organizations that many of us do not work in. Interesting. So I'm not sure if I caught a actual definition from you of what you would consider serverless. I think I'm close. I've built up this stack. Mm -hmm. Now we have our container orchestration. Got this house of cards. It's yeah, we got to... this house of cards. It's getting, <laughs> it's getting taller and taller and taller. But it's just like, oh my God, I cannot manage this Kubernetes cluster on my own, on top of all these virtual machines that I'm managing on my own, on top of somebody else's service. I need somebody to take care of this. Mm -hmm. There's a couple of ways of dealing with that. And maybe this is a, a little bit of a stretch, but I, I, I think of functions as a service as a form of managed Kubernetes orchestration. Like it may be that AWS Lambda is not built on Kubernetes, but it's essentially what it comes down to. It's a high level container scheduler where they're not bothering us with the details of which node is going to run this service or whatever. It's finally abstracting away the virtual machine. So yes, we do have some complexity in this new realm, but we've leapt far enough into the future. We've gone high enough up in the abstraction totem that we can stop thinking about some of those lower levels. It's a more comfortable place than stopping halfway. <laughs> hmm. Okay. And there are alternatives where we get a different kind of interface, but I do think that serverless is one way. And what is that specific way though? It's when I have a, a Docker container or, or something very similar that I want to be able to scale to zero. Sometimes I just don't want to run the function at all. Mm -hmm. I want to be able to scale from that or to that very, very quickly. So I don't want to scale an hour and five minutes, even in 30 seconds. I want to scale as instantaneously as possible. So that's just important for certain types of problems. And then sometimes I may just have enough similarity in terms of like what machine image I want to work with that actually I can just use the same one for a lot of different tasks. That is an implied characteristic of serverless that I'm using sort of a stock definition that lets me just really focus on writing my code and not defining that image 
I think that that one's probably the thing that falls down the most in reality, but it is part of the initial appeal. That's my definition of, of serverless. It's, it's all of those things below it, but it's the ability to scale from zero to infinite very, very quickly and run similar-ish things on a platform that I don't have to worry about the details of. For me, there's the function as a service, the Lambda. One of our colleagues likes to call them cloud spackle, <laughs> which I think is a uh, an apt way of looking at them. Uh -huh, uh -huh. And then I think of Fargate. So uh, Elastic Container Service is the managed version of Fargate, which is the serverless version of that. So really, like you're saying, all you have to worry about is, can I write a little Docker image, upload it to my uh, Elastic Container Registry, mm -hmm. and then let Fargate kind of take care of the rest. Right. At least that's the the promise of it. And do you feel like those two concrete examples, do they cover enough of what you consider to be serverless or is there something else out there? It's interesting that you say that. I would say Fargate is containers as a service. I see it as competitive to serverless. It's a cousin. It's another managed container orchestration. And I'm very bullish about it. I think in five years time, it's probably going to be where most of us want to be. And the reason I'm bullish on not just Fargate, basically what it comes down to is a regrafting infrastructure as a service providers like AWS, regrafting their low level services to the container where previously they were grafted to the virtual machine. Mm -hmm. That is the promise of something like ECS Fargate. And I think it will be replicated across the industry where it's just clear that, okay, we're not shipping around these hardware virtualization machine images. We're shipping around container images that have certain performance benefits. They are lighter weight. So why don't we have our best in class network security features connect to those containers? Why don't we have our identity and authorization and authentication logic connect directly to those containers? Basically the answer to that, there's nothing theoretical, there's nothing technical, it just takes time. Mm -hmm. We're in an industry transition and I really think that those things are going to win. But I think that they're more akin to virtual machines below them than they are to at least the marketing pitch of serverless. They aren't about having like zero scaling. The idea is unburden yourself <laughs> with, <laughs> with infrastructure and having containers versus virtual machines. You and I, we definitely like that idea, sure. Mm -hmm. But I think that it it's a different pitch. I wanna go back to something you said about lambdas because it was surprising to me you mentioned that they make scheduling a lot easier that they're a kubernetes like thing whether they're using that under the hood or not is not really important but mm -hmm. they accomplish the same thing mm -hmm. and yet when i think of lambdas i think of them as a scheduling nightmare and the orchestration necessary to keep everything in sync especially if we're talking about like an event driven architecture can you talk a little bit more about that it's it's not going to be a fun time <laughs> mm -hmm. if if you try to push everything through that i don't actually know why we call it scheduling when we're talking about 
placement. When I say scheduling, I mean, I have a thing that needs to be done. Mm -hmm. And the process of scheduling is like figuring out where that thing should be run mm -hmm. and making that happen. And with AWS Lambda and related services, that can be really straightforward if the way that those decisions should be made is based on a individual request, if it's demand driven, if it's appropriate for your workload, for something to be done when a queue has a new message mm -hmm. or when just a synchronous request is made and it's just mm -hmm. like fast enough that we can like spin something up, answer the request and go back to sleep. Those are great situations where I have to think about it less if I use a service that has thousands of other customers <laughs> and, and I'm, I'm just one of many. And like it notices that my queue has a few messages in it and it throws a few CPU cycles at that problem. Uh, that's great. But the nightmare that you're talking about is just about how some people get really excited about the future and they're just like, we're going to create an entirely serverless architecture mm -hmm. for our core web services. And so we're trying to create a low latency human user experience around these technologies. But I think what gets hard about AWS Lambda and its neighbors is when you're a little bit more particular about how something should be executed. It gives you such a simple interface because it's also not promising you that much, right? Mm -hmm. And so when it gets frustrating is when you have to promise to your customers, this request is going to be fulfilled within 200 milliseconds, right? Because that's when the human mind starts to notice and get frustrated with the lag of a particular experience. That's something that is not going to be easy to achieve with a lot of your serverless experimentation. You're going to have to learn through trial and error what kind of pre-warming you need to do, what kind of coaxing of the system that you're building that you need to perform to make it simulate the experience of having your own dedicated hardware. You know, by relying on serverless for something that we have performance criteria for that our service provider is not giving us, then we have to manage this kind of spectral machine by just poking and prodding at this supposedly simple interface until it does the thing that we want it. And maybe it goes away tomorrow because they actually just shift the way the thing is managed. Some of our listeners will be thinking a lot about like LLMs, right? Maybe that's how all of our jobs will be working in the future, right? We're, we're just kind of like sending hints to the computer mm -hmm. and then eventually, you know, maybe it gives us something close to our parameters and maybe tomorrow it won't, but you know, in architecture, we like to have a little bit more of a solid foundation. We want guarantees that I think um, pure serverless can take us away from. Is that what you were thinking about in terms of just the logistical nightmare of that scheduling? Yeah, I think for me, it's the pretending of something that's ultimately ephemeral mm -hmm. to be something that is stable and stateful and you can get it maybe to that point, but like you said, it takes a lot of trial and error mm -hmm. and who knows how stable that will actually be. Yeah. And I think the point about expectations and guarantees 
about mm-hmm. that system is a good one. I'd be curious, despite all of its shortcomings, there must be billions of lambdas at any given time. Yeah. It's a very powerful construct and it seems to be gaining steam even now. Yeah. What do you think is behind that? Like, where are the benefits? What are some of the prime use cases that allow this technology to thrive? I think that we have been a bit negative, especially just comparing it to some of its neighboring solutions that have a lot of its benefits and don't have all of its uh, downsides. But something that you said that I think both of us understood in our bones a little bit, but maybe, maybe could you elaborate on the spackle? <laughs> the dig- <laughs> what was it, the digital spackle? Yeah, I think I think of it as like the connective tissue of a lot of cloud architecture. I need a dotted line from A to B, and there isn't a really good way for me to get that. Let me just stick a lambda there and mm-hmm. you know have that connect those two things. Mm-hmm. I think one of the concrete examples I can think of is like a Lambda proxy behind an API gateway. Mm-hmm. You can have your API gateway as a facade in front of all of your, your services, and that Lambda can just take the request and do anything you want with it and send mm-hmm. it anywhere else within your architecture. You know, it's like an omni tool. You can use it for wherever, and in some ways it, it can give you enough rope to hang yourself with. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, incredibly powerful tool. I think that that rope is there in previous iterations. And so what are some of the advantages of, of Lambda? So yeah, with the spackle, you know, I can write like a cron on a Linux system mm-hmm. and I have enough experience, you know, just sysadmin or whatever that that's not going to give me the heebie-jeebies necessarily, but it's very easy for me to also just lose track of that stuff. So one of the advantages of Lambda is that Something like AWS, it is labyrinthine. There's a lot of stuff going on, but it's not its not nearly at the scale of even a half a dozen Linux servers that are hand-managed. Mm-hmm. The damage that you can do with an AWS you know, IAM user inside of an account, it's somewhat constrained. I can observe the fruits of your work fairly easily. And so those kind of hacky things that you do in Lambda, they are well described. There's only so many levers that you have in front of you. And so it helps constrain the number of dependencies, all these different linkages you have. Hmm. What else do I like about it? You said uptime before, but I do actually think that the uptime story is better than the latency story. Hmm. I actually had a thought the other day that it would be nice if I could set up an AWS Lambda for myself. I share a, a like a to-do list hmm. with my wife with this um, commercial service called Todoist. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's just helpful to use something shared. But I also use a lot of org mode for myself because I'm a nerd. And <laughs> I like to do everything like keyboard driven and I kind of want to combine the two and it's like, okay, how would I do this? One of the basic building blocks that I'd like to use is I'd like to consume the webhooks that the Todoist API provides me. But for some little hobby project that I'm working on, I don't have an always on web server of my own for that purpose. And Lambda would make a lot of sense for that because like I trust their uptime guarantees better than mine. Basically their, their ops is better than mine when it comes to the question of 
is somebody going to be listening when this API request is made? And can that thing be slotted onto a queue that eventually my code on my machine can run at my leisure? It's a different kind of glue than a lot of the stuff that I've done before, like API gateway or just like a scheduled thing. In this case, I'm talking about a one-off web server just for web hooks, but you can get really creative when you start thinking about all the operational tasks that can be just abstracted away into this nice space. But I think we're both making a case that you want to evaluate those things on their own merits. Yeah. I think there's this perception that Lambda is an easy solution to an otherwise more difficult problem. Mm -hmm. And it gives the impression that you can almost defer decisions to later on down the road. Hmm. Do you feel like there's some truth to that? I think that there's some truth to that. I think that in a way it's easier to develop in Lambda and then on a server than vice versa. Like, I really don't recommend that you try to transition your monolith to, to Lambda, <laughs> for example. So there's some truth there. And what I said before about discovery, discovery of kind of like the crazy experiments that you've run in your AWS account, you know, it's not quite as crazy as anybody that's been responsible for looking at like a, a long running server and figure out what the hell's going on in there. Mm -hmm. But where that starts to break down is that even with tools like serverless, I am not sure whether the software delivery life cycles that proliferate in reality in real software teams are as mature with AWS Lambda as they are with more material servers. <laughs> yeah. That doesn't have to be the case long-term. I think that that's kind of a growing pains thing. And eventually you could have parity there, but that's the only caveat that I would have about deferring your decision-making. Basically, do you have a handle on the things that you're deploying to Lambda? Yeah, I think when I look at Lambda, I almost immediately see the potential for microservices. Oh, I can just have like this thing, you know, a ping pong and request back and forth to each other. They all connect to some central database or they have their own databases or whatever. Yeah. I mean, like we haven't talked about databases. I think that's a big thing that I think are mostly problematic about Lambda. I think that even people that work in large organizations, it's very likely that you're working in teams that need to deliver on their own, right? Mm -hmm. And so developer productivity, it's got to be priority one, two, and three for technology decision-making. And so you're right that it is well-suited to delivery of microservices. And the flip side of that is that fast prototyping with traditional hardened relational databases, shared code, et cetera, in a lot of those spaces, if you try to bring serverless into your core application development, your, your business logic, you're sacrificing a ton. Yeah. There's, um, I'm thinking about my current project and I'm to get around the issues with local development and the issues with databases and things like that. We're already starting to see, uh, for instance, you're worried about connection pooling uh, to an RDS instance or something like that. You can set up an RDS proxy in front of that, and that mitigates some of the issues that you have with Lambda's connecting to the database. 
And on the local development side, you have tools like local stack, which can create a loose approximation of an AWS environment on your local machine and use the AWS CLI to interact with some of these objects. Um, so I guess all of that makes me think there's a bit of like an inevitability to these technologies in that there's a lot of resources that are going into dealing with some of the issues that they encounter. And when I'm thinking about consulting for a client, Lambda is always in the back of my mind. It's like, where does this fit in? Is there an opportunity to use this despite knowing all of the issues with it? Mm -hmm. So I'm curious if you've had a similar experience or if you disagree with that notion of the tide is coming or like it's already here, we can't stop it. I think we might be more on the same page precisely because you think of the containers as a service, as mm -hmm. part of this wave. Mm -hmm. And I think if we think of that as like a common tie, then yes, yes, it's going to happen. Whereas in my mind, I think of it basically as the containers as a service is the less sexy cousin, brother, whatever. And I think it will win. Mm -hmm. I think it will win because what you were saying as examples, creating Postgres proxies, running local versions of AWS, having your application developers figure out like, you know, service discovery within their machines, whatever. We're getting really far from the productivity promise that this thing was sold on in the first place, right? We started out just saying like, you can write Python and just really just concern yourself with your business case. And now everybody's an infrastructure engineer. Everybody on the team is an infrastructure engineer. They got to figure out how to connect to all these databases via, I, I don't know. It's just a lot. And so I think that the reason the containers as a service is going to win is, yeah, maybe it's a little bit more heavyweight, but it's something that is more reproducible in a local context. It's something that we can tune to the performance that we want directly, you know, just by purchasing more of it. Um, but the world is not stopping for sure. Even the less favored versions of serverless as professionals, we need to be up on this because first of all, we might be wrong. I have to check myself. I don't know everything, right? Mm -hmm. I need to think about and understand this scenario to properly evaluate. But also, if people are excited about these technologies, we have to figure out what it is that they are hoping for and figure out if this is the thing that's going to give them that or the alternative, rather than just saying, let's just go with tried and true. Because they have a need. They have a need that we should use creativity to solve. The problem is sometimes they don't have the language to communicate that need. So we've got to pick around the problem and like figure out, okay, based on what you're excited on, what is that underlying need and how can we serve it? Yeah. I guess, do you have any, any closing thoughts, any parting words, any lingering advice uh, that you want to bestow? I think that there can be paradoxes in terms of sort of server phobia, right? That maybe we will have less pain if we abstract further. And it's not necessarily the case. I think at the end of the day, what we should be pursuing is the greatest simplicity 
that we can achieve based on the operating parameters that we have, right? There, we just have a lot of requirements that we don't control, you know, starting with our service level objectives or just like the basic, what is it that we're trying to do for people? Mm -hmm. And we have to think hard about, okay, how can we build something simple that achieves this thing? It can't be too simple because then when we actually contend with all of the things that we need to accomplish, we're bending over backwards to backfill capabilities that weren't there in the first place. And uh, it can't be so complicated. We can't be so uh, paranoid about future needs that we concern ourselves with big company problems, basically. And so there's just a lot of decision-making and moderation that's required. And that's really hard, but you can do a lot worse than being a little bit old-fashioned. <laughs> well, Bill, this was an absolute pleasure. I feel like we could talk for another two hours easily. Anytime that you want to talk about serverless or infrastructure or trends that you're seeing in the space, please hit me up. Uh, would be thrilled to do a round two with you. And uh, yeah, just thank you so much for your time. This was this was amazing. Yeah, likewise. Um, yeah, we could definitely keep chatting forever, but uh, <laughs> it was great chatting. Thank you for listening to this episode of Collaborative Craft. I want to thank my guest, Bill Wenjoey, for the wonderful conversation and you all for listening. Are there things you're seeing in your organizations that we didn't cover in this? What are some of the ways you're seeing craft evolve within your teams? Let us know by heading to eighthlight.com slash collaborative dash craft or tweet us at at collab craft show. Please like and follow Collaborative Craft on your preferred podcast app. And if you like a particular episode, share your comments. We'd love to hear from you. If you know anyone else who's curious about the craft of software and the types of conversations we're having, please tell them about the show. The more people hear about us, the more we can help others unlock their potential and build a better future. This episode was produced by our friends at Dante32. Bye!